Hey, one fans, Andy here. We're going to Cisco Live, and we can't wait to see you there. If we see you wearing an A1 or Cables to Cloud shirt at Cisco Live, we'll enter you in our giveaway that includes a bunch of cool prizes like an A1 branded Yeti cup and an OCG of your choice from our friends at Cisco Press. Don't have a shirt? No problem. Head to the link in our bio and grab yours today. See you soon. This is the Art of Network Engineering podcast. In this podcast, we'll explore tools, technologies, and talented people. We aim to bring you information that will expand your skill sets and toolbox and share the stories of fellow network engineers. Welcome to the Art of Network Engineering. I am AJ Murray, and I am joined this evening by Tim Bertino. He is at Tim Bertino on Twitter. Tim, I love the hat you got there. Look at that. <laughs> you too, man. <laughs> Gotta love the the new swag. We we uh, recently got some new swag hats for both podcasts. We got some shirts, uh, got some jackets, and, and uh, of course the the hat. So uh, nice to rock the logo. It's it's so cool. Like you know, we've we've built the podcast up. We we started cables to clouds earlier this year. We you know we see the logos all, all over the place. But when I when I picked up that embroidered gear from the shop, I was like, "This is this is too cool." <laughs> <laughs> and they did a they did a fantastic job. This was a place local to you there in yeah. Vermont, and yeah. it's very very well done stuff. Yeah, yeah. So what what's new, Tim? How are you doing? So what's new? Actually, a lot with the podcast. I've been putting in um, a, a decent amount of time. We've been fortunate enough to uh, have some more sponsorships lately, and and we're doing some different kind of content than what we're used to. You know, we usually do either straight up podcast episodes or YouTube videos, and we've been getting into the uh, getting into the short form. Been having to do a little bit of the TikTok and uh, and the like, and that's it, it's it's been interesting. I've been doing. Doing some more uh, behind the camera time, and and uh, luckily we got to do a, a decent amount with uh, a bulk of the team when we were out there in Knoxville recently. So it's it's been uh, a lot of fun and exciting stuff that we can't wait to share with everybody uh, coming up here pretty soon. Yeah, yeah, uh, Tim, you're a genius. <laughs> like the, <laughs> the stuff that you have come up with and, and written, uh, it's it's great stuff. I cannot wait to share it with you all. Uh, I, like, I want to, I just want to explode and tell everybody like what we're doing. And, and you know what? We probably could, cause by the time we edit this and get it out there, I'm sure there are, but, uh, no, it, it was really fun to record that stuff in person. Uh, and then, you know, I had no idea what you had done for the second video and, and you had uploaded all your clips and I started pulling them down. I, I will say my favorite part is the outtakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, I, uh, I hold nothing back in the outtakes because I, I know and, and actually I should say I hope and pray that AJ doesn't release most of those publicly. <laughs> no, no j- just for the team. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so what's new with you, AJ? At, at the time of recording here, we're nearing the end of summer and getting into what I call the, the best season of the year that is fall slash autumn. So what's what's new out in Vermont? Uh, well, the leaves, they are a changing. Um, we've gotten a ton of rain this year and, and all estimates say that because of the additional rain, we're going to see some really popping color this fall. Uh, so we're going to get, you know, last year, the leaves changed. They, they change every year regardless, but last year it was a really dry summer and all of the tones in the fall were rather muted, right? Like they, they still got the nice oranges and reds and stuff like that, but they didn't pop like they normally do so uh i'm i'm really hoping for a really beautiful fall i've i'm trying to time it i'm trying to figure out when peak fall is going to hit because i'm going to take a couple days off from work charge up my camera batteries charge up my drone (laughs) batteries and i'm just going to set out across the state to see what i can get uh from for my photography stuff so that's it's always a fun time of year uh, and then, you know, like you said, we've been working on the extra content. So I've been, you know, burning a little midnight oil, uh, editing that stuff. So, so for our listeners who aren't aware yet, we are on TikTok. Uh, and you can find us just like you find us anywhere on our social media. We are at Art of Net Eng. Uh, and you know, we're, we're putting out content. Uh, we found some nice little AI driven tools that help us take our long form episodes and dice them up into some nice short form content. So, uh, that that helps as far as the content creation goes on those platforms, and you know it's 
it's actually taken off. We're starting to get some uh, good followers there. And I, I think we're starting to build the listenership. We've slowly seen the, the downloads start to tick up here as we're reaching new audience members on these platforms. So it's, uh, it's pretty exciting stuff. And, and I got to give you some props on that too, because you do all of the, and not just for the short form, I mean, for everything we do with the podcast and, and YouTube, you do a bulk of the editing. And with this short form content, I've really just been handing you rough video and, and what you're turning it into is is really cool, man. We really appreciate what you're doing. It's fun. It, it's nice to have a creative outlet that has nothing, absolutely nothing to do with IT, yeah. right? So. <laughs> and it's, a, I mean, at the end of the day, it's a skill set, right? That you can yeah. use in the future. Yep, absolutely. Well, let's dive in, shall we? Uh, I'm uh, very excited to welcome our guest to the show this evening. His name is Tony Dubiel, and he is the product solutions architect for Ansible Network Automation at Red Hat. Thank you so much for joining us, Tony, and welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's awesome. So what exactly is a product solutions architect for Ansible Network Automation? <laughs> okay, so um, Ansible is a product and an open source initiative, right? So I work for Red Hat and, um, you know, we have account teams that cover what we call North America public sector. So that's all the federal and state and local government, you know, types of customers. So I'm an overlay that supports our customers, um, you know, for Ansible, but my, my focus is network automation. So um, anything to do with Ansible and network automation, um, I help them in terms of, um, Sometimes just, you know, demonstrations, proof of concepts, um, enablements, workshops, you know, all, all the things to kind of help them move forward and make sure that they can, you know, adopt the product and, and you know, have success with whatever kind of use cases they're trying to drive through the network space. Okay. Very, very cool. What, so, you know, when, when I hear a product solutions architect, that, that could be a couple of things, right? You could be a person that has a marketing uh, sales background uh, that's maybe learning how to do some of this network automation stuff to show off. You might have a networking background and you've got really good people skills and that's why you're doing the, the talks and stuff like that. So, so which is it? Can you, can you give us a background on your career? How did you end up here as a, as a product solution? Director? Yeah. So I, like I go pretty far back in the, like a traditional network engineer Okay. Um, in terms of my career. So um, like in the earliest days I was in the air force as a tech controller and oh, I was, cool. um, you know, working with like old school, you know, Cisco routers, like 2500s, 7500s, you know, stuff like that. So like <laughs> pretty far back, like dating myself. And um, when I got out, um, well, for a while I worked in like the, um, the federal space with contractors and primarily gravitating around Cisco stuff. And over time I got the route switch CCIE and that opened a lot of doors for me. And um, like moving forward, I started liking the pre-sale side of things because it was a little bit less of cutovers and um, uncertainty, like with <laughs> like with my work-life balance <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. So um, I moved into um, a couple of partners, Cisco partners, and then eventually I was in Cisco. So um, in terms of like that type of role, um, you know, supporting products, it was primarily um, around like a, you know within an architecture, you have certain products. So in Cisco, I worked in uh, service provider space. Um, I was in enterprise for a while, commercial, um, and some of their public sector mm -hmm. covering, you know, different products, but doing a lot of the same things where, you know, you're helping the customer adopt the solution. And, and in the pre-sales capacity, you're, you're usually giving away like some free consulting. There's opportunities for you to continue to have your hands on, you know, skill set and maintain it because you're helping them with like proof of concepts and, and things in their own environment, like they're doing bake-offs and different trials against solutions. So, um, you know, not as hands-on as, as you would be post-sales, but you still you know, have the opportunities. Sure. So um, I went into collaboration. Um, I was a voice CCIE, so I did that for a while at Cisco, and then data center. Data center is where um, I was introduced into automation. So, um, but it actually wasn't, well, it was kind of because of the network, but um, it was mainly because of OpenStack, if you're familiar with that. Okay. Um, particular technology. So that was like kind of like a private cloud alternative, like VMware and, mm -hmm. you know, another, you know, virtual virtualization types of um, solutions and kind of before all the public cloud stuff um, really came to light and before a lot of adoption, even to AWS. So um, those APIs, a lot of times, you know, they were perfect candidates um, to use Ansible. So I'd learned Ansible um, because of OpenStack. But Neutron was like the service in Ansible for networking. So um, I was using that, you know, to configure, um, you know, even like Cisco devices could, you know, provide like gateway capabilities for OpenStack and things like that. But folks started like really looking at traditional networking 
in automation. So um, that opened my eyes to like, there's so many possibilities to avoid like, you know, all these GUIs that we have to deal with. So death by a thousand clicks where it takes forever to <laughs> provision anything, or you want to make things repeatable, right? So you don't sit there, you know, and spend the whole weekend. So I was like, there's a lot of, you know, opportunity to improve that experience. So in, in Cisco, um, I was able, I was fortunate to move into an automation role. So for a while, I was in enterprise and I was focused on programmability and automation um, for our customers in enterprise south. So that was like customers that um, were from the Carolinas down to Florida and then over to Texas. And it included like everything like Walmart and Exxon and uh, Home Depot, like pretty much anything you think of banks and, and things. It was just all just depending on the size of the customer, they mm-hmm. would fall into that bucket. And they had like so many different, you know, possible use cases for automation because they would, um, you know, a lot of them would have like tons of different Cisco solutions and they were all different, especially earlier on before all of the um, unification of APIs where a lot of this stuff, like even within a vendor would be so, so different in how you would authenticate and use and consume their APIs. So it was really difficult for me because just like understanding all the Cisco solutions and how to configure them manually. Okay. Then how do you translate that, you know, into interacting with the APIs or like, you know, the command lines, if we're talking about routers and switches, but being able to use multiple tools because, you know, not everybody likes Ansible. Some people, you know, gravitate more towards Python types of tools, like now with like Nornier and Napalm mm-hmm. and NetMiko and those types of things. So I had to know a little bit about that. Um, for more of the cloud networking stuff, Terraform was really popular. Yep. And for folks that were dealing with a lot of REST APIs, they might be using something like Postman. And then they're really like, the Postman's easy, but it's like understanding the APIs. You know, those raw API calls is kind of difficult. So trying to do all that and sustain everything, it's really tough. So I think that's the challenge that a, a lot of people have as they started to, you know, figure out, you know, what tools now that, they, that they're going to commit to and then really starting to double down on them and really build the skill sets. So um, I think now, like, it's taken a lot of years to take off and DevNet, you know, from Cisco really helped things along and oh, H- yeah. Hank Preston, I got, you know, had opportunities to work with him and he's awesome and kind of like, you know, he really helped build a lot of the, the whole notion of net DevOps mm-hmm. and getting, you know, networking people excited about automating, but like, it's really taken like five years for people to really start to, you know, now I think people are really starting to implement it. It's becoming more mainstream, which, um, you know, th- there's pros and cons to that too, because there's like, now there's a lot of people that are looking for help. Yeah, there's no shortage of people that need and a lot of people, you know, just need that help to get started. And then once they get for, you know, far enough along, then they're going to be okay. You know, there's, you know, just enablement and those types of things. So yeah, sorry, I kind of went off and that's kind of like, you know, going, you know, that transition type of thing. That that was fantastic. So did I count three CCIEs route switch voice and DC? Wow, jeez. And, and I do, uh, before we, we jump into to automation and tools, I want to step back to the the uh, the base network engineering days. So you went from route switch into DC and collaboration. I mean, you really, the only thing you didn't mess with, um, and, and at least that you're calling out, is, is wireless. So was that on purpose that you really specialized in those three tracks, or did you, it just kind of happen along the way? Well, actually... I did pursue security CCIE at one point. I was doing like vulnerability assessments and things like that. And I, okay. I was kind of, it, it, it was, it was different because it was like security devices and architecture versus like, you know, incident response and, you know, assessments kind of thing. So, um, I kind of didn't know which way to take that. But then that's when collaboration came along. And then I really liked collaboration because it was, it was really cool when, when a lot of people were cutting over from their PBXs, you know, into call manager and, you know, just that whole process was a lot of planning and, you know, and, and a lot of work enablement to help the people understand the, this whole new paradigm of voice over IP. And then the call centers were like their own beast because they would have the IVR systems. And that was like a programming type of thing too. So I really enjoyed like call center and call center express, you know, and helping, you know, create those scripts and things like that. So that was like another area. I guess I could probably point to that as being like the first um, automation type of thing before the OpenStack. But it's just, um, you know, a little bit different because that was more like, you know, Cisco had that like Java you know, scripting interface that you would use to create those scripts. But um, Well, and to me, you, that's like the perfect, being a network engineer is like the perfect background for somebody getting into collaboration because it's all, like you said before, it was the the analog or the PBX systems and then it was voice and collaboration over IP. So somebody that really understands the, for lack of a better term, meat and potatoes of, of networking is, 
to me, perfect for collaboration. Yeah, and there's a, a lot of like, you know, ISDN and SIP trunks and, and things that fell more on the, the network side. So it was like, you really needed network people to adopt that technology where I think they would have a, a better chance to succeed than like a lot of the traditional PBX folks trying to adopt, you know, all this new technology around it. So it was really like an inflection point for network engineers to like to go in that area. And I kind of feel that way around network automation too, where um, I think, you know, having like the experience on the network side and then learning to adopt automation is a little bit easier for folks that, that may, you know, be more of a developer and then trying to understand all these different aspects of networking, because you're talking about so many different vendors, so many different types of devices. Um, and even like within a, a certain category of device, like routers and switches, as an example, it's so different in the data center versus the campus versus the WAN and then versus like colo facilities. Or like if you're trying to do networking between public clouds or hybrid cloud, you know, on-prem, off-prem, it's like there's so much to know on the back end and the intent of what you're trying to build. But like for networking folks, you know, sometimes it's it's kind of like, is the juice worth the squeeze? Because if if you can use the portals and you're comfortable there and the command lines, and the GUI to some extent, do you always have to automate? So it really just depends on like how 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 often you have to make changes and how many touch points you have, or you might make that, you know, that choice on I really should, you know, adopt the technology or not. But I'm all in and it's taken about four or five years. And then now I can automate just about anything. You know, anything that comes up, I can figure it out. It's just a matter of time to figure out um, how do you do it manually? You know, then how can I you know, take that and then, and then, um, you know, transition that into an automation and make sure it manifests itself with the same outcomes that it did, you know, originally. So, all right, I've got a super loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, a lot of folks, I mean, really myself included, don't have a lot of experience around automation and they don't know where to start. And you also mentioned that there's a large number of different tools out there. Do you feel like network engineers need to settle on that tool of Python or Ansible or XYZ? Or do you see there being uh, value in having different tools in, env- in an environment because you may have different use cases? Yeah, I think different tools for different use cases, but for the individual, um, I think it's always a good idea to explore Python, um, even if um, you're not planning on building, you know, becoming a full developer and building like applications with Python. I think it's a good idea to to understand the basics because just about every vendor has um, like a Python SDK for their APIs. So if you really wanted to, and if you learn how to like build Python scripts up to the point where you can use functions and then call like these classes that they create, they do all the heavy lifting on the back end with their SDKs. And then they take care of all that communication, all the REST APIs, and turn those into parameters. And then you're just using those parameters in your Python script. Um, if you can get to that level, um, that's fine. But but that may work for you. But then how do you work with like a team of other folks that may not have the time or be able to sustain like a skill set enough to like interact at that level with Python? So um, that's where I was. So I was like, hey, I can do all these things. But then I would show it to a customer and they would be, you know, impressed by it, or maybe they would want to use it. And then maybe a couple of folks would be able to take it and run with it like in their environment. But then what happens when they leave? Were they able to enable like the other folks around them? So like, that's kind of back to the abstraction thing too, is like, can you hand it off to people an easier method so that they can use it without having to know like all of the underpinnings of how it works. So the reason why I, I still think it's valuable, like if you can learn Python, you have the time, do that. Because what you can do is like Ansible is a Python application, you know, it's built on Python. And when you run a module in Ansible, you're interacting with a playbook and all you need to know is YAML. And all you're doing is defining parameters in a, in a YAML playbook, right? So um, normally you don't hard code those, you'll variableize them. And it's just a module and it'll have parameters and certain parameters are required for like the configuration. Some of them are optional. And if you don't know what they are, you can look at the documentation and it has all the you know parameters listed out. So most people can figure out how to do that in a basic um, playbook. But behind the scenes, it's a Python script that's running for that module. And, and these days, the way that it works is the vendor creates those, you know, so they kind of do the heavy lifting. But if you know Python, you can go and create your own um, Python scripts. And then you just go through and use you know, certain libraries for Ansible so you can turn it into an Ansible module. And then you can abstract for other folks where it was kind of hard to do that 
using just Python, maybe you have to do like a Django front end or you know, something like that. And it's like a lot more coding on your part. But this way, it's like Ansible already has it set up so you can, you know, kind of hide your Python in the background and other people can use it and consume it. And it's like either consumed through a playbook or you can even dumb it down further with self-service using a survey in the Ansible controller or using something like ServiceNow or another ITSM sitting in front of it, you know, and then they just would have like, you know, drop down forms and things like that to populate data or something fancier like an info box or NetBox or something that's an IPAM, you know, and then they're filling out yeah. all that information and just gets pushed, you know, into to Ansible. But the okay, idea so is- you're, you're already kind of blowing my mind here. And, and before <laughs> we get a little, a little, uh, any deeper, yeah. I, I want to have a little bit of a vocabulary lesson. Okay. So when we talk about things like this, I, I've heard multiple ways to frame this up that I, I think are really different. So I want to take a, okay. a minute and, and talk about some of the different things that you've said. There are concepts of within automation, there's concepts of abstraction, orchestration, and automation. And I'm told those are not synonymous things. Can you kind of define what those three concepts are? Yeah. So so automation, or this is you know just my viewpoint of it. But for the most part, automation is just taking task, right? Because you know a human could complete a task in a certain order. So there's a process, right? So there's a you know step one, step two, step three, and then you either succeed or fail. So automation is simply just taking that and then automating it. You know, and you can think of that as kind of like the scripting, or in this case, a playbook in Ansible, and and that would be would be automation. Um, Orchestration is where you may have um, tasks that have different purposes that may need to occur like at a different time. And maybe like the output of a certain task is is a requirement of dependency for the input for like another task. So you might have like these conditions okay. in between. So a lot of times orchestration tools will have like, you know, different conditions, um, you know, different um, like succeed, fail, or like always states, like what do you want to do? If it passes or fails, it's it's more complex. So normally it's stitching together like multiple scripts, or in this case, um, in Ansible, it'll be stitching together like multiple playbooks or multiple roles or kind of like a fancier playbook. And um, orchestration would give you like integrations into things outside of automation, like roles-based access, um, as an example, or other services for credentials and things like that, um, or integrations into other tools too, that typically you wouldn't have like a playbook interacting directly with these things. It would be, um, you know, a consequence of having orchestration. So the our automation controller is an orchestrator. So you could you could think of it as more of like uh, the platform is kind of where the the orchestration capabilities are more advanced. You know, in, in that sense. Okay, so you're you're stitching multiple tasks or multiple playbooks together, and that's that's orchestration. Things that could be dependent upon each other. Okay, but it could be multiple like things outside of automation too. Like your ITSM, oh, IPAM, interesting, okay, or something like Cisco ICE for like policy. Yeah, so there's um with orchestration, there's there's tons of things you can do. It's very powerful. So so Tony, you you said a few minutes ago where you know now there's a lot of people that are doing network automation, and I think you know as opposed to you know four or five six years ago, and I, I think there's a really uh, big factor in why that is. So I you know I remember five or six years ago when there everyone was just like. You got to learn Python. You got to learn Python. Network automation is going to be this great thing. You got to learn Python. So, <laughs> yes. so you, you go on to Pluralsight or CBT or wherever and you learn Python, but you don't learn it in a network automation context. You're just learning Python. And it's like, great. I learned Python. Now what? <laughs> but over the years, you know, Cisco DevNet with developer advocates like, you know, in the past life for you and, and Hank Preston and, and then lots of other content creators out there now have created this network automation uh, context for us to go and consume this material. And, um, you know, I always refer to Ansible as the gateway drug for network automation because you're right. You don't need to know Python. You don't need to know any crazy scripting languages. You just need to understand understand YAML. And if you can understand YAML, you're golden. And you you know the the command line syntax for the platform that you're working with, be it Cisco Juniper or or Arista or whatever, right? That those are the only two things you really need to be successful with Ansible. Now, all that being said, let's define what is Ansible, what are some of the the parts to it. I know that there's an open source uh product in there. There's like a paid for product. I've done a lot of work with the uh, open source piece. I've put a few how-to blog articles together to get network, autom or network engineers started in, you know, in their network automation journey. 
so, so let's, let's kind of define what is Ansible. What are some of the parts and pieces to it? You know, you mentioned playbooks. What, what are some of the other things that we need to put Ansible together to get it working for us? Okay. <clears throat> so like Ansible core engine is the same, regardless if we're talking about, you know, open source or if we're talking about the product or really any of the, the tooling that uses Ansible. Like even if you're running Ansible and like GitLab or something on a runner, the Ansible core engine is the same thing. So that, that core software, you know, has the, the automation capabilities of Ansible. So when you execute automation, that's the Ansible core engine. Where it's a bit different is like when I, when I mentioned the Ansible automation platform, um, there's that, right? The Ansible core engine. How we use it has changed. It's evolved a little bit because a lot of people are familiar with Tower as being the product from Ansible. But currently in the Ansible automation platform, what, what used to be Tower is now called the controller, but there's there's additional components as well that are a part of the platform that didn't exist in the days of Tower. So what we've what we've done is kind of like rearchitected it and decoupled you know some of the responsibilities that used to be in Tower so that it would be more cloud native and be able to scale better uh, in terms of um, high availability and performance, mm-hmm. right? So so that's changed as well. So the Ansible Core engine. Um, today lives in a container, you know, because we're moving, you know, more into this containerized, you know, world of everything. So um, if you used Ansible Core Engine in the past, you would have to install it into, normally the best practice would be install it in a Python virtual environment. Mm -hmm. So that way all the dependencies have a wrapper around it. So you're using like the right version of Python and all the other modules that you need and, and whatever else, you know, Ansible requires. You can install it, but you have to keep installing it everywhere you're using it. So there's always that chance that if you're working with somebody else, there might be a small nuance, a different version of something that they're using or a different collection and that type of thing. And it's hard to police that because if you're troubleshooting something that doesn't work, um, it could be a bug, but it might just be like the version. And it, it's hard for like teams to work that way. Mm-hmm. With it being in a container, you can, you know, version control these execution environment containers and they'll have like the, the specific version of the collections. So the collections is how we package the modules today. And you can go to Galaxy as the um, community, the open source community, and you can use the collections from various vendors there. But the product has certified collections. So certified collections are um, effectively the same thing, but the vendor goes through um, additional vetting and it's supported um, through the subscription, you know, through the product. So you can open up a ticket and then Red Hat will troubleshoot with the vendor for you, as opposed to the open source side of things, if you have a problem, you know, you find the contributor, whatever, you know, vendor or individuals that are responsible for that particular module in that collection. And you go to GitHub and you log an issue and then they'll try to help you. But there's no agreement or service contract or, you know, anything like that. So but it's, you know, it's that same same paradigm. But like in the Ansible product, um, the controller is like kind of like managing automation. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you had Tower, it did the same thing. It's like, I have all these playbooks. Do I want to run them from my laptop or from a server, or, you know, you know, in cloud or whatever? Or do I want to run them from like a, 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 in this case, the controller, which has additional capabilities to manage those jobs or those playbook runs? So who has access to them with roles-based access and the jobs themselves? Because um, I may want to increase or tune um you know, based off of how many devices I'm connecting to. So there's additional capabilities in that regard. Like if I want to do job slicing or, you know, I can do um, forks and serial and those types of things in my playbook to kind of make them run better, like parallelism, like how many playbooks do you want or how many endpoints do you want to touch at the same time? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of um, levers that I have, like for better performance of the automation and then additional management because there's, there's additional logging and auditing and, um, and like I mentioned, like the roles-based access and integrations into third-party tools that are, you know, common within IT. So mm-hmm. things like the ServiceNow and InfoBlox and that kind of stuff. So so that's like managing your automation. And then um, there's additions. So moreover, there's other things too now. So there's a private automation hub. So that way you can manage all of your collections and your execution environments in your own environment. Um, and if you create custom content, you can store it there. So it's like a container registry and it does all these things that allow you to work locally. And then we have um, we have the console for the customers so they can go to that and they can pull down the certified content as a customer or they can you know have it synced up with their private environment or if they're air gap, there's ways of you know updating the private you know repository. So that's another capability. And then the um, automation mesh is um, around how we're able to scale out, you know, in this new architecture, the cluster of controllers 
And we have this notion of these execution nodes. So the execution nodes, instead of like installing all the capabilities of the controller on them, it's a very light install. So you can have a smaller uh, VM or in some cases like container that you're running this execution node. And um, all it's doing is executing the playbook locally. So okay. you can position them like near where the target of the automation is. So maybe you have like a lot of latency, okay. like sites that are way out wherever and you know, ge- geographically separated so far, like in the, the old days, you'd have to just like work the best that you could, you know, with SSH and, and mm-hmm. there's some timers you can adjust for connections and things like that. But now you can position the execution node right there. So there's no latency, you know, you're not bound by latency with, um, you know, launching that job in the execution node. You just have to have connectivity through this automation mesh, which is like a layer four T- um, TLS connection like, you know, just a layer four mesh network back to the cluster. And, um, you know, you'll have better performance that way. Sometimes you might have like a boundary, like segmentation or NAT. So there's a hop node you can use in that case where it just has out-of-bound connectivity back to the cluster. And then that way it can have an execution node sit behind it. And then if there's a firewall or, you know, some other security boundary, it will allow um, that outbound connection and it'll open up a receptor port and then it'll, it'll, you know, invoke the automation on the execution node that's sitting behind, you know, a, a you know a segmented zone on SD-WAN or in a DMZ or, you know, something like that. And it can work that way too. So it opens up like flexibility because I may have like a controller that sits on-prem that's managing things in cloud over a VPN or a direct connect or something or vice versa. I can, I can spin up a, a cluster of Ansible controller and the other components in AWS or in Google Cloud or in Azure, and they could manage on-prem endpoints too. So it just opens up all these different possibilities. Or you can you can run a cluster on top of OpenShift too, which is our Kubernetes um, solution. Wow. Yeah. So it's yeah, like pretty much anywhere. That's a really interesting concept. I mean the, the whole concept of edge computing and content delivery networks is really big right now for things like media and and you know big data. And I wouldn't have thought of that type of distributed use case for something like automation, but it makes a lot of sense where you can centrally manage um, all of your automation, but have a way to sync that to edge nodes that are actually managing the mm-hmm. gear, you know, get those jobs to run as close to the endpoints as possible. It makes a lot of sense, just not something I would have thought of from the lens of network automation before. And, we, and like in our edge, like Red Hat's edge solution, um, they've already created like all of the the wrapper of like, you know, different Ansible validated content around managing our edge, but it will also include like other vendor stuff too. Like if you're using Meraki wireless at edge sites and things like that. So it makes it really easy um, to, to spin those up. And then again, you don't have to have your controllers co-locate it. So that way it's, I, I want to talk to manage. I want to talk about that validated content and yeah. the uh, collections from vendors. Now, is that something where, where vendors go through the process of validating uh, their collections to be used in Ansible. Is that something that came as like a, a value add when Red Hat kind of took over operations or, or operationalized Ansible? Is that when that piece happened? What, yeah, it happened shortly after they decoupled the core engine from the uh, modules. Okay. So that was kind of like the first step needed because that's why it took so long for Ansible updates, right? Because to have like a major release, they would have to have like all the vendor updates you know, and they would, um, you know, time that with updating Ansible. So it really made it hard to be agile. So when they split off, now it's decoupled, right? So the Ansible core engine has no dependency on any of these modules that are now packaged into collections. So when they started the collections, they started the certified collections, but it's taken time. Like not all the vendors adopted it right away, but most of the best of breed ones out there that have already been, you know, working on the community side of things have went through the process. So like, like an example, like um, Pan OS, like they, they became certified, like, I think like two or three months ago. And that was like the last major one that I, that I recall that um, a lot of folks were waiting on that one. Like, when are we going to have the certified collection? So now we have that. Um, There's one other piece too. So there's validated content and that actually um, has a linkage back to when you guys were asking earlier about abstraction. So that one, um, I can kind of define like how we make things easier because of that. Um, another thing that's new is the event-driven automation, and we call it event-driven Ansible. So um, what that's doing is it's a new another component, right? And um, it can have a source plugin for like a message broker. So like Kafka, like there's a bunch of different ones. I'm not an expert in, in a lot of them, but on the networking side of things, I've, I've been using Kafka already for that. And um, Kafka has integrations into things like Telegraph. So if you're familiar with like streaming telemetry and um, being able to pull that in 
and convert it from like protobuf, where normally that would go into like a database, like an influx database. But you can also convert it into JSON structured data and then have that managed in a topic in Kafka. And that can feed our EDA. So effectively, like we can we can listen to events on devices in real time, as opposed to like the way that Ansible normally works is when you run a playbook, right? That's a, like a push model. Like you're invoking that playbook. It'll go and like you can, you know, gather facts or, you know, whatever the playbook's doing, it can learn state or glean informa- operational information from that device. With streaming telemetry, you set that up to where... Um, it's called XPath. So it points to an object that's either a configuration object or it's an operational state object. So something like an interface, if it were up or down, you could periodically check that. Or if it's if it changes state, it'll send out, that'll trigger the telemetry. So you can receive these things in real time as opposed to like in a push model, you have to schedule them. So in the controller, that's another capability it has as a schedule. So I might go out periodically and do compliance checks and check certain operational state to populate a dashboard or something like that. Now with EDA, we can like as soon as something happens happens in the network, that particular um, you know streaming telemetry can become an event for EDA, and that could create a trigger that that launches a, a playbook in the controller or sends a notification or does something in a workflow to react to it. But I'm I'm not suggesting like I tell people like even though you can automate remediation for a lot of these things you probably don't want to or not yet for a lot of things because you just want to be sure and and you normally have like a downtime window and change management and all that kind of stuff anyway Mm -hmm. but you can at least learn about and everybody's aware and you can go out and then automate troubleshooting triage to collect more data you know so then when you do open up a ticket like you'd have it open up a ticket in the service now and you can have all this data ready so when when somebody else is ready to to make that decision to approve it you can have an approval step and then bam push the change out to the device but it was all like a feedback loop. So, you know, very um, proactive in that regard. So um, that was the last of the, of the component thing. So I'm sorry, I kind of went off track. No, no, from no. Where you were going, but. <laughs> There's a whole lot more to Ansible now than, uh, than the last time I looked at it. Holy smokes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, it was just tower. You know? pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it's finally, uh, it's grown up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> so we we are very biased here, right? Because this is the art of network engineering, and we are getting familiar in this chat with the the different network automation components of Ansible. But what are some of the other use cases that people can can use from Ansible that's outside mm-hmm. of of just straight up network automation? Yeah, so like I work with a team of folks that um, have different skill sets, so they focus on you know different domains in IT. So one of our like value props is like, hey, you can you can automate anything in IT pretty much with Ansible. So it's just really just a matter of if it's if someone hasn't already done it before, just somebody going through the steps of you know creating a process and building automation around it. But where I think like the the bulk of the content and where um, you know most of the history of Ansible automation is you know and even today right is really around you know servers and because Red Hat is real, so like real automation to do like a lot of things like compliance checks and patching and to integrate into like other tools like satellite, you know, that help, you know, in that regard as well. So it's like a, that's another Red Hat product. So they integrate really nicely to do like the, you know, patch updates and remediations and and those types of checks together. So a lot of our customers, um, you know, use Ansible for that particular use case. Um, another one that's, that has a lot of traction too is, is just public cloud. So, um, you know, there's always that debate like, well, hey, do I want to use something, you know, more like a Terraform, you know, for things that are like immutable? And can I just use like a Terraform in cloud? Right. So uh, we work well with Terraform. So we have um, collections where like Terraform's northbound of, um, of Ansible and vice versa. Like Ansible controller is kind of managing the workflow and Terraform is, you know, a component of that. It just depends, again, like you mentioned earlier, like, does it make sense to use different tools or how you would use the tools in different scenarios? So um, in cloud, like a lot of the things that are containerized, right, you're going to blow them away. You know, they're disposable. So those are completely immutable. So something like Terraform makes sense because it maintains a state, right? So things like networking in cloud, though. So if you're going to have like, you know, um, transient um, gateways between, you know, using AWS like VPCs, or if you have like express routes and direct connects, like with your on-prem into the public cloud or into a colo facility, you don't blow them away. Those, those devices stay up and running. And, um, 
they need to be configuration managed, right? So that's where um, the tool for that would be um, Ansible. So they kind of go together hand in hand because it's two different purposes. It's like the immutable stuff is is really more around like delivering application stacks temporarily and then having the benefit of being able to tear them down so you're not paying for them when you're not using them. But the infrastructure has to be there because it's a, it's a part of your infrastructure, you know, because it's your, even though you're it's going across clouds, it's your infrastructure, right? So if you have... AWS and you network it to Azure, then you have connections into your environment and maybe you have um, on and off ramps, you know, with SD-WAN into those things, they're going to be there all the time. So that would be more, um, you know, configuration management use cases. So there's a lot around that. Um, You mentioned edge. So that's more emerging and we see, you know, a lot of traction there and um, um, security. So um, trying to think, yeah, probably networking is, is probably like, probably like lower on the totem pole right now in terms of like Ansible, just because the other, like some of those other use cases, just people have been automating them longer. So they just had, you know, more time for adoption. But now I think that I think it's really going to ramp up on the network side of things, you know, so we're a little bit later to the party, but now that we're starting to understand <laughs> it, it's like, well, Hey, I got 10,000 devices sitting here. I can catch up to you real quick, you know, and I've got like a hundred different use cases. So, you know, it won't be long to, to kind of eclipse that stuff, but and I do see, I see the I, I do see how things like servers and compute ha- have been around a long time as far as automation because to me you're you're probably spinning up those kinds of services up and down much more often than you are mm-hmm. switches and routers and when you do spin up for instance ten servers to be part of this compute cluster they are more often than not other than host names and IPs going to have a lot of the the same different uh, configurations and it's it's a little bit different when it comes to networking but like you said i i agree with you that it's starting to become more mainstream to want to be able to uh, manage and automate networks but i do think that it's a lot around you mentioned a minute ago that with networking where you're not necessarily spinning up and spinning down networking services often the biggest uh, value proposition there is to have standardized configuration management. And that's where things I, I think like Ansible are, are really able to, to deliver on that. Yeah. It's, um, there, and there's some things that kind of cross domains too, like compliance, you know, if, if, if that impacts everybody. And, and sometimes it's the same configuration because maybe, you know, perhaps you have like the same NTP servers or, you know, DNS configurations, things that are a part of your compliance that span all those different devices. So it's nice having like a platform that you can use to touch all those different types of devices, whether it's a server or cloud or, or networking or security. And you really don't have to worry about all the nuances. You know, you can create a workflow that just checks NTP for, you know, across all of them. And then um, it either passes or fails. And then you either have, you know, you either react to it or it's a notification or you create a list or you know, populate a report or whatever. Um, you know, those are becoming more common too, where it's like a cross domain. But in, in terms of like, like networking, there's a lot of um, very unique nuances to networking that are different than servers and containers and, and things that, you know, like that. Um, not just that they're permanent and that you want like a common configuration. It's also difficult like to, to manage the configurations because really like in an in a ideal scenario, it would be like automate everything. So like you ha- if you had like a network operations team, and a design team, like, like automate first. So like all of our baseline configurations, we always have automation in mind. And the operations team is always going to make changes and do any testing, um, you know, based off of automation. Then it would be really easy to, to have a single source of truth and to ensure that, um, you know, all the configurations and state of the devices are in compliance at any given time. But in reality, it's like you have folks automating, but then you also have people that are going in and out of band to troubleshoot and making changes and it's not always um, reconciled. So the next iteration of something, you know, when you go through like, like a scheduling of a, you know, compliance checker, you're making your next configuration change, then you should go and check those devices first and do a drift check to make sure that what you think is the configuration is actually the configuration because otherwise you may override it. And it was something that somebody like spent hours on troubleshooting and figured something out, but it just didn't make it back <laughs> to the automation team for them to fix it on the front end, to go and revise like the variable files that they're using for playbooks and things and to incorporate that into the automation. So a lot of times you'll, you'll kind of see that impact where, you know, it's just like, Hey, it used to work and now it doesn't. And then somehow the automation broke it. But in fact, it was just like automation wasn't updated. So as, as folks become more familiar with like a, 
like a true DevOps or net DevOps process, they start using repositories and they start incorporating, you know, drift checks and, um, you know, just making it a lot easier if you do need to make a change, you know, as a result of troubleshooting or if you're just, you know, making new changes that you can enforce um, those policies, you know, pretty easy. Once, and, and that kind of gets back to like not just running a bunch of playbooks, but having like an automation platform and being able to to manage that and to integrate it into like like Git repositories and, and things like that or other sources of truth for your configuration, like CMDB types of um you know, databases like in your um, ITSMs and the like. So that way you can check against them too before you make a change and post change and just, you know, a lot, a lot of um, state can change unintentionally, you know, you know, it could be pulling your hair out. And uh, I think that's a big challenge is like just adopting a process around that being all in and not just like yeah, dipping I, the toe. <laughs> I, I think, I think all in is the, is the right term because you bring up a good point there and it's more than just, automation because the the network state is only to the automation engine is is only as good as what it knows about and if it doesn't have the updated state the updated configuration then then it can cause that's when it can cause a lot of problems so something i want to discuss is you know we've been talking about a lot of in-depth use cases around network automation so let's step back a little bit and think about this from the perspective of somebody who wants to get into ansible mm-hmm. we'll, we'll make it simple we'll say you know a medium sized enterprise customer wants to start getting into network automation wants to see what ansible is all about where would they start like normally we would we would want to like kind of look at their current state of the things that they're doing and you don't want to have like you know in terms of like the goals you want to make it like very attainable for them kind of like the the low lying types of things so that they can get a quick win as they're learning so we would we would tend to stay more on like the read only side of things so you can you can pretty much go into any environment and you can help them, you know, either through if they need a compliance type of check, you know, those are pretty easy to set up. So you can go and check like, you know, versions of what's running in each model, um, you know, which ones do need to be updated, uh, backups, right? So they're safe to do. You can, you can, it's kind of cool with Ansible. You can back up to a Git repository, to a server locally. There's like all these different scenarios of where you can back up like router configs, um, or really any type of config, whether it's ACI or uh, a Palo Alto firewall, anything that has any type of config, uh, you can easily back that up. So those are like a good starting point too, because they may have something already, but normally whatever they're using is kind of bound into a domain. So like if you're using like DNA Center from Cisco as an example, it's more around like the campus and Wi-Fi, you know, like the Catalyst products. So it does a great job of like, you know, that's already baked into it. You back up the configs as part of it and it has swim for like updates and, and things of that nature. But it, it's not going to work with some of the other, even like within Cisco solutions. So um, the backups work the same across different types of devices, firewalls, routers, switches. The backups effectively work the same. So it's, you know, it's another consistent way. So that's a, a good starting point. So really a lot of the network management types of things. But the, the, again, the issue is, is they're probably using a tool or multiple tools for that. So sometimes the starting may have a little bit of overlap with some of the tools they're already using. But, um, it, you know, again... You know, that's one approach. Another approach is if they have a lab environment, because nine times out of 10, if they have a lab environment, they probably haven't automated the lab itself. So you can go to town with a lab environment and you can show like all the best practices. And because it's a lab environment, there's no issue with downtime and things like that. Or if you need to break things, it's a, you know, a great environment to learn. And then by them automating their lab environment, then usually it makes it a lot easier because they can, they can spin up like different scenarios a lot easier and make that more disposable in itself. So I've seen a lot of people like really, you know, turn their lab environment into something really cool that they can, they can use without having to build it manually to make changes for different scenarios. Or it's like someone's using the lab environment. So we have to wait until they're done with it, you know, so it's going to add some delay into this particular, um, you know, if we're working on a project or whatever, and we don't have a lab environment, you know, so like you could make it more multi-tenant in nature and, and things like that. So lab environments are great. And and usually those are where we would introduce like the Git repositories and things like CICD pipelines. So like kind of introducing some of the other kind of, you know, cooler DevOps types of tools in there too, because it's like, hey, in application development, we have like a notion of development branches, staging branches, and then production. So a development branch would kind of be more like you're messing around with your laptop or maybe you're using like a lot of simulations or emulations like CML from like a Cisco side of thing or like GA, uh, 
GNS or um, EVNG or whatever, you know, it's not real gear, but that's okay because you're really just trying to vet out your configurations or, or making sure that your automation works, you know, with configurations, but it doesn't really have like a great data plane, you know, and it's definitely not something you can stress test, right? So your staging environment should be like a real lab where you don't have like all the devices or maybe not even all the same models, but it's close enough, but it's some, you know, actual real gear or has the actual controller or whatever the solution is. So you can closely represent what you're going to do. So that way you can cover about 80% of the things that would surface there. So that way, when you go into production and you do, you know, you never really find everything, but you should, you know, have um, less surface area, you know, for something to go wrong. So that, um, that whole blast radius, right? So when you go into production, Maybe I don't need as big of a downtime window, right? I don't have to sit there all weekend. I only need a couple hours. And I know that it's only going to be like a few things we'll have to troubleshoot. We won't have that, you know, that risk of like, oh, damn, we're going to have to roll back, yeah. you know, and then we're going to have to ask for more, you know, kiss the ring of the change management people and <laughs> you know, ask for another downtime. Yeah. You know, so you can, you can cover your ass kind of, well, I don't know if I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> you no, cover you're good. You're things good. a little bit. podcast. <laughs> Yeah. So, so you mentioned earlier that th- things have kind of gone to like a container, uh, kind of focus, right? So, but, but can you still install the, the Ansible core product on any old Linux box or is that option? Oh, yeah. Longer? Yeah. Oh, okay. Cool. So, so it, like, you know, like I said, Ansible is the gateway. I've always referred to it as the gateway drug to automation, right? So, so you could do the container thing. You can install it on just a, a vanilla Linux box and, and learning how to, you know, do YAML is ex- extremely, extremely easy. Um, so, you know, get, get your hands dirty, start playing with Ansible. And, and you made some great points. A lot of people, when they start their network automation journey, they think they got to like jump in all the way and start automating changes. But, you know, if they've never done that before, it's like, well, what am I supposed to use this thing? Well, you know, validation of all your network configuration doesn't meet any sort of, you know, company standard. Uh, are, are you, you know, checking the versions of all your, your devices to make sure everything's up to date. And then if you have to, you can automate the software updates themselves, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is pretty cool. I've seen a lot of people do that with, with uh, various playbooks and stuff. Uh, yeah, I'm working and then, on some of that right now. Yeah. Uh, and, and then, and then, you know, once you, you trust how the platform works, then you can start get information, start making, you know, smaller changes and, and stuff like that. Uh, and then just kind of build up from there. And then, I mean, I'm, just from what you've discussed this past hour on what all the, the larger Ansible product does uh, it, it's crazy. Everything I'm still thinking about that event driven thing, you know, like mm-hmm. interfaces go down and you can start, you know, pulling troubleshooting information, just running show commands and gathering that stuff back in some automated fashion for somebody else to triage later. But, you know, I'm thinking like, you know, capturing logs as close to when mm-hmm. the event happens. So that way you, you have that information right there, uh, you know, stored safely in a text file or attached to a ticket or whatever the case is. So just some really cool stuff going on over there. Um, you, could, you could use syslogs too, instead of streaming telemetry. Oh, okay. Right? So, All right. Yeah. That, that could be another source for it too. So, um, or like event of uh, the um, EEE can trigger like events. So like you could use that too, kind of in conjunction with it. So if, but that was a little bit hard because you have to do like a little bit of tickle scripting and all that kind of stuff. Oh, but, gotcha. Um, yep. Yep. But like all that stuff works. There's like tons of different ways. But the for me, like the streaming telemetry kind of covers everything that the syslogs do anyway. Yeah. So you can, it's just a matter of, um, there is a bit of a challenge because XPath. So what that is, is instead of like XML. So XML for me, I get a headache trying to read XML, right? Because you have the open and closing <laughs> yeah. tags and you're trying to find yeah. like the values in the middle of this thing is all zigzaggy everywhere. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, there's a lot of it. It's like, oh my God. So XPath is like a very direct path to whatever that object is. So, uh, you know, it it's kind of hard to remember those two, but there's tools to, to determine what they are. Mm-hmm. And there's some really good like um, GitHub repositories where they have a bunch of examples. But, um, but Cisco has the Yang suite tool that you can run like a little Python application. You can search for XPath. So pretty okay. much like anything like command you would do, what would be the XPath for it? And it'll show what it is. And then you just drop that in there. So it could be like the state of the interfaces or like, I want to know when the configuration changes because someone made a config on the device and I want to be notified of that. And then, you know, have that um, maybe run a config drift check right after mm-hmm. it happens to make sure something important didn't change on the device. Gotcha. So that's like another use case. Yeah. But I'm absolutely. happy to show like the, I can demo um, EDA if you guys want to see that sometime. There's a lot yeah, of cool I, things. I know I do. <laughs> Yeah, that that sounds really cool. Um, so uh, uh, 
Time flies when you're having fun, uh, Tony. So, so if people want to learn more either about the open source project or the, the larger enterprise product, where can people go to, go to learn more about uh, Ansible? Yeah, so there's, there's a lot of different sites. Um, there's one uh, like a like whole like category of different labs that are um, self-paced. Mm-hmm. So normally I would show people that link. Um, I could, um, can I paste links in here? Or? Uh, it, it, okay. If you want to paste them in the chat or if you want to send them to us via email, or I mean, you can even send them to me in, in LinkedIn chat. I can add them to the show notes. So if, for right now, if you okay, just want to yeah. explain what the links are, and then I will have all the links available in the show notes. Okay, cool. Yeah, because I have like different ones for different purposes. Gotcha. So the, the self-paced labs are really cool because you get like a working um, AAP controller, and um, you can do like the, the scripted labs that are a part of it, or you can actually, because you have admin access to it, you can create your own um, job templates and playbooks and things there and run it locally to use okay. it for like testing and things like that. So you can kind of think of it as like a, like a DevNet sandbox. Oh, okay. So it's, it's curated, but you can use it like however you want. And it does have like a time duration. So, you know, once that time's over, then you'd have to schedule another one. So it's a great way to learn that. Um, another tool that I didn't talk about um, that's important too is the command line. So in like the older days, I mentioned, you know, you, you install Ansible core and you can install it locally. And typically you're using like the Ansible dash playbook commands. Mm-hmm. Or Ansible, if you want to talk like directly to a module, or Ansible Vault, you know, if you want to encrypt your um, usernames or your passwords or credentials, rather. So, like all that stuff still exists, mm-hmm. but we have this new command line tool called the Ansible Navigator, and the Ansible Navigator uses the execution environments too. So that way, if you're working like in what I call like your test or your dev environment, mm-hmm. you can use the Navigator and you can work out all your playbooks and run them locally. And then when you're done, you can commit them into your repository and then pull them into the controller. So that way you don't have to like toggle between the GUI and what you're doing. You can work locally. And it's the exact same container that you're using locally as the one that you would run as an execution environment for okay. that particular project um, in the controller. So so there's that. Um, another thing is um, like we kept talking about like abstraction and the validated content. So um, the validated content, it, it sort of um, intersects with like where should you start? So like I, I still like the same thing uh, you know i really recommend like doing more of like the read only and staying more in the lab environment to you kind of um you know build your your skills and have a you know the the correct chops before you go out and make changes into your actual production environments but when you do go into production um in the old days it was a little bit uh, more difficult because you really needed to know how you were configuring those devices from the command line mm-hmm. so like when people would start out like with Ansible and it really wasn't like that long ago, but let's say like if we, if we went back in time, like maybe like four years, um, most of that automation was using Jinja two templates, which also is a Python thing too. Right. So in those templates, it's very sensitive to the syntax of the command line, because if you create a template and you're off in like the spacing, you know, especially for like a router config, you'll, you're going to have an error because it's not going to be a valid input into the device. Right. So you really would have to know just, you know, you can't get away from knowing the command line in that regard. So when we move forward, we moved into like the, the next uh, like evolution was the resource modules. So in the resource modules, the way that they work is they interact with the device and we have um, a notion of state. So this state is where Ansible, once it makes that connection through SSH or through the REST API, it'll look at what the configuration is in the device. And um, it'll look at your configuration that you have, your intended configuration that's either like in one of your variable files. And then variable files, um, they could exist in like an inventory, but that's not best practice. That's just for like real high level stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, group would be for like, you you um, organize the groups of devices and groups like like types of devices into groups. So you can have group bars and then host bars are very specific to the device configuration because, you know, normally they have different IP addresses and host sure. names and access list entries and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so you would have those. So the state would say like, if I have the state of merged in a resource module, it'll look to see what configs in there and it'll look at your config, like wherever you set those variables. And, and there's like more locations where you could set variables, but just, you know, for the sake of simplicity, it's like in one of those ones that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. So it'll compare what's there and what's in the device. If it sees the configs already there um, and it has the state of merged, it's not going to change anything. It's only going to merge in something that's new, which is sort okay. of like how repos work too. Sure. So, yeah. so if it sees something that doesn't exist, it'll merge that in and leave everything else alone. But then there's also other states. So there's replaced. 
So replace will kind of do the same thing. If it sees something that's not in there that's in your config, it'll add it. But if it sees something that um, that is there that's not in your config, it would replace it by removing it. So that one's used a lot for like compliance checks if you want to do the remediation. So mm-hmm. to kind of take that a step further, you can run a resource module in check mode where it just tells you the things that it would change or would replace. Or you can run it in run mode and it actually makes the change on the device. So usually it's a two-step process. You go out and learn and see like, what do I need to change? Then you would execute it in run mode later and actually make the change. Okay. But you could use the exact same playbooks. You just run gotcha. it in check mode versus versus run mode. Yep. Um, overwrite is similar, but it removes like the entire config wholesale. And then replace or overwrite it like with what your config is, mm-hmm. but that doesn't work well. You never want to use that with like access list and VLANs. You would always oh, want yeah. to use the replaced. Yeah. So it'll be very precise in what it's taking out. Um, and then there's delete it. So delete it's really cool because in the old days of Jinja two, what normally would happen is you'd have a Jinja template and that would represent a configuration. Um, best practice would be to have a backup of that config. And then if you made a mistake or something and you needed to fail back, then you would um, replace it with that entire configuration. But then all this reconvergence happens, right? Because the whole config needs to come back up again. So mm-hmm. your routing protocols and your ARP tables and CAM tables and all that stuff, you have to wait for all that. In a resource module, the state of delete it would only um, delete the config from that one resource module. So a resource module is very scoped and specific to like a protocol or a type of configuration in the router or switch or whatever the device is. So it could just be like OSPF or BGP or SNMP, or there's a, you know, a bunch of different ones that are you know, different types of configurations in a device, but it's only going to delete that config, um, the one that you sent. Gotcha. So that's very less, you know, it's less intrusive. It's going to be very quick. And mm. it, the, that, you know, blast radius is very small, you know, and you can make that change very quickly. So delete it is what that does. So you have all these states. And then the other part of it is you're not even dealing with the command lines, you're dealing with structured data. So it creates like a YAML dictionary or list depending on uh, the documentation will tell you in the config if it's like a dictionary or a list of dictionaries. You know, that all goes back like just normal program, programming stuff, but it's like the structure of that data. So um, what these resource modules do is when they, when they look, like I mentioned, like they look to see what configs in there, it shows you the before, right? And that's that configuration. So it shows you the before, and then it shows you the command lines or whatever the native construct is, REST APIs or like in Juniper, um, it's netconf. So mm-hmm. you see that in like the, the XML or whatever, it'll show you whatever um, that is. And then it shows you the after that it either applies because you have it in like a run mode or it shows you um, the after doesn't change when it's in that check mode, but you do see like what the config that it needs to push is. So it's like a built-in diff. And then that's very um, useful because you don't have to do any programming to make that work. It's baked into the resource modules. Yeah. So resource modules are great, but like to use them, you still have to, you know, know how to use like if you're going to create like roles and that type of thing to like like make purpose built playbooks that are using the resource modules. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of effort in that. So the validated content with these are is um, at least this first round of it, this first iteration from Red Hat is we have the network base. So it covers like all of the basic um, network use cases. So um, what happens there is you have like this this role that's kind of like a, a role at a higher layer than like the other roles that are focused on the specific like resource modules. And you don't have to really write anything into the playbook. You just list out like what resource modules you want to interact with. And it'll go out to a device that hasn't been automated yet. And it'll ingest that configuration and turn that configuration into all of the YAML files that represent all the resource modules that work for that device. And then if you make changes to them, you know, to those configurations, you can push it back out again. And if you have, um, you know, replace, you know, as the state or whatever, it'll go out and remove things that shouldn't be there and, and replace it with the configs that should be. Yeah. So that one, like you, ha- you really don't have to know much at all. So it's not really like a low code or a no code. It's like an easy code type of paradigm around that. But then for the ones that we have in, um, we do have validated content around BGP and OSPF and, um, in firewalls and some other things that will that list will continue to build so in the meantime the basic one covers a lot but you have to do like a little bit more in the playbook but they're getting to the point where it's kind of like a like a single task of using this resource module that does like all these different things for you so you may only have like just a little bit of code that that isn't represented in like a, a resource module so you may still have like a a corner case, like this little one-off Jinja 2 template, or you might use like a config module with like the lines command or, you know, something like that, that parameter just to do like these little bits and pieces. 
But the idea is like, you know, you're up and running and it's very, very simple to get started using the validated content. The hard part is the people that, that are like been using the older ways for a long time. In some ways, like it, for them, they have to refactor some of their playbooks now to take advantage of the newer paradigm because you want it to kind of fall in that framework because now it's really easy because everything, um, again, like there is some work involved, but there, a lot of it's done for you. So you can, um, you can really get a long way with a very like low you know, barrier to entry with the validated content and vendors are getting involved too. So this is like multi-vendor what I'm talking about. And then the vendors are providing their own validated content for their use cases for things like, you know, Arista's, um, um, you know, CVP and like Cisco's ACI, like those types of things will become, you know, validated content at some point The customers will just go and grab it. Like I need to, you know, the Cisco validated content, boom, it just, just a little bit of work and I'm up and running. Wow. The old days, it was like, oh, I got to write playbooks for like two months to <laughs> get everything the way I need it. So. That's awesome. That's yeah, great. So. All right. And, and again, you, you'll get those sh- uh, links over to me and we'll put those in the show notes for, for people to Yeah, I'll give you links on like the validated advantage. content, the EDA. Um, I also yeah. have like a network automation uh, meetup that I do like at least once a month. Oh, okay. And, um, that one is just like a meetup where we do like hands-on labs and it's all just networking automation. So it's always a network use case. So I'll give you, give you guys that link too. Awesome. And then I found uh, a, an Ansible specific YouTube channel. Well, there is. Hot- yeah. There's, a, there's yeah. actually a couple different ones. There's the product one and the community. Cool. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll include those in the show notes as well. Uh, Tony, how about yourself? Is there uh, a way that people can follow you? Are you on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, anywhere that we can share with our listeners? Yeah, on Twitter, it's um, at T-Dubiel, T-D-U-B-I-E-L. Um, I'm not as active on there as I, I used to be. Um, on LinkedIn, uh, what the heck's my, the LinkedIn's like um, Coding Dubiel, so oh, okay. C-O-D-I-N-G, Dubiel, D-U-B-I-E-L, or at Coding Dubiel with like the, whatever the, the front part of the, the LinkedIn URL. And then I do have like a, like a meetup site I'll give you the link for that too, that has the events listed. So uh, it's free. People can just join it and then they'll get a notification of like when there is an event and then they'll have like the link for the, um, the conference call for it. Tony, this has been great. I've learned a ton about what Ansible has been up to the last few years since I really, uh, last dug into it. Uh, Tim, do you have any, any last minute questions here for Tony? No, no, no questions last minute. I just think it was really interesting to hear about the, the evolution of, of Red Hat because over the years, cause AJ, you nailed it on the head. You've gone through blog posts in the past and using, you know, the core Ansible, Ansible Tower to do some of the network automation to see what um, Red Hat has taken and done with um, Ansible on top of the the core that's been there uh, forever. So it's it was it was really cool to kind of step through time to see how Ansible's involved. So Tony, thank you for joining us and and really teaching us that. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me and keeping me on track. I mean, there's so much to talk about. It's kind of hard. Like I feel like I'm throwing everything at you, throwing it all at no. all. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't realize there was so much to it. Uh, so so uh, definitely, I think there's a couple of things that we could follow up with some YouTube videos. I mean, I'm personally really interested in the event driven Ansible stuff. So. Uh, that that might be a good follow-up to do. But um, anyway, thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next time on another episode of the Art of Network Engineering podcast. Hey there, friends. We hope you enjoyed listening to that episode just as much as we did recording it. If you want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to the show in your favorite podcatcher. You can also give that little bell rascal a little ringy-dingy so you know when we release new episodes. If you're social like we are, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We are at Art of Net Eng. That's Art of N-E-T-E-N-G. You can also find us on that weaving web that is the internet at artofnetworkengineering.com. There you'll find our show notes and some blog articles from the hosts, guests, and other friends who just like getting their thoughts down on that virtual paper. Until next time, friends, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.